People are strange when you're a stranger. Faces seem ugly when you're alone. Women seem wicked when you're unwanted. The streets are uneven when you're down, when you're strange. Faces come out of the rain Boop. when you're strange. No one remembers your name Boop. when you're strange. When you're strange, when you're strange, all right now, people are strange. When you're a stranger, faces seem ugly when you're alone. Women seem wicked when you're unwanted. The streets are uneven when you're down. When you're strange, faces come out of the rain. When you're strange, do-do-do-do, no one remembers your name. When you're strange, when you're strange, when you're strange. People are strange when you're a stranger. Faces seem ugly when you're alone. Women seem wicked when you're unwanted. Streets are uneven when you're down. That is the one door song I like, and I think that the rule should be everybody gets one door song that they can enjoy, unironically. And that, for me, is the one. All right, folks, we're almost done with Grab Grow's Dawn of Everything here. We're getting there. Chugging along like little little trains. Uh, and. We've finally gotten to the point where uh, they have shown their hand, their their specific uh, like ideological matrix that they are funneling all of their information through, and that they're using to seek information to prove their points. Uh, and it is very relief. Like this chapter was was uh, very cathartic for me because reading this book so far, it has felt at the entire time I'm reading it. I am engaged by it. The prose is very conversational and, and clear. Uh, the examples that they bring up are fascinating. It's a bunch of stuff I've never heard of that really has changed how I understand uh, you know, uh, civilization, like what that even means and how it develops. So I absolutely recommend the book to anybody who wants to kind of crack out of any uh, set understanding of their world of their world. But the whole time I'm reading it, there's I just feel like feel like I'm sitting on my keys or like my wallet is too thick or something. There's just something poking against me as I'm reading it, something that bothers me a little bit. And it peeks back, it peeks out in corners and bits, but at no point do they really stop and luxuriate in it enough to really kind of see the whole thing for the whole ideological project. Beyond just knowing like they're trying to, you know, detach us from uh uh, established narratives of how human civilization uh, begins. But here we get, because so far we've gotten a lot of benefits from their approach, a lot of new interpretations of interesting uh, recent data in archaeology and anthropology uh, filtered through this very lively voice. And now, though, 
uh, we see the limits of their approach. We see where they hit a wall. Uh, and it, it is unsurprisingly related to their idealism and their visceral allergy to material considerations when they are talking about uh, you know, the history of humanity. Uh, they fundamentally reject the idea that there is anything binding people uh, to their relationship to their environment. Because, to them, the implications of that are that there is not full human autonomy, which, as, you know, the idealized, synthesized, liberal subject that anarchists are, they reject it and cannot accept it. And it giveth and it taketh. It gives you this romantic understanding of your own capacity uh, and of the capacity of your fellow humans that I think is useful, uh, but it blinds you to the reality in front of your face because it just does not fit uh, with the uh, romantic notions that you sort of, I guess, have to adhere to in order to truly feel like you can be a autonomous free being, which you have a visceral, a non-rational rea- uh, uh, addiction, you could even say too, a uh, fixation on. Uh, and that is really the true legacy of, of, of uh, the Enlightenment and liberalism in general, uh, is that it uh, primacies uh, the self in this way. And, and they analyze the world through this. And of course, the ironic thing is that the thesis of this chapter you know, is that our modern understandings of freedom, liberty, individual autonomy that we cherish and have cherished since the, since the dawn of the Enlightenment in Europe anyway, uh, were actually forged in North America uh, by people who were responding to regimes of domination and, and uh, hierarchy uh, that had emerged and had fallen and wanted to model something different. And in so doing, came to many of the same conclusions that later animated the Enlightenment, and in fact, communicated those ideas to figures in the Enlightenment. And of course, what they're trying to do with this is say, hey, look, look what they did. They gave us these neat ideas. They gave us these great ideas that helped us animate uh, understandings of human liberty. And yet, when those ideas hit Europe, what were they put? To, what were they put to the use of? Were they put to the use of creating human liberty? No. They were used as justifications for the establishment of the most thoroughgoing and hegemonic regime of domination and property uh, hierarchy ever created in humanity. Is what they did with it. They they used it to create the backbone of the capitalist uh, ideological superstructure. Because the people who came in contact with these ideas were people who were fully enmeshed into regimes of power control and alienation from their environment. That meant that they could not apply them the same way that the Native Americans applied them in the material conditions of North America. They had to apply them to the conditions of Europe. Which meant what ended up happening, no matter how much freedom and liberty people were trying to express in the face of this new, uh, this newly revolting system of orders that they had uh, recognized, they could push, push against it. But what ended up being uh, at every step 
created and solidified through their actions is merely the furthering of capitalism, which is the refinement and perfection of the regimes of domination that begin in the early grain states of Eurasia that then dominate the world. So how can you wonder, how can they not see this? And we'll get to why they can't, because they cannot take materialism seriously. And as such, they cannot really draw any meaningful conclusions from their uh, very well-presented and, uh, you know, persuasive vision of human capacity in the abstract because there is no such thing. There is no real thing as human capacity in abstract. It can only be situated in a material context. So they start this chapter uh, saying, okay, so why do we get here? How, how did this happen? If the state was never a thing, if state structures existed in different formats everywhere, then how the hell do we get this system where state domination emerges? And they go, as, they, as anarchists love to go, to our boy James C. Scott, our, our boy who loves to see like a state, our boy who loves to uh, perfect the art of not being governed, our boy who hates carbohydrates. He hates grains. Uh, Uh, and he, and Scott's uh, thesis, which has been backed up by, apparently, I've been reading about this, has been backed up by uh, like other harder sciences, is that it's not really agriculture that superpowers state formation. It is specifically cereal agriculture, grains, because grains can be easily sorted, stored, transported, and taxed in a way other agricultural products can't. And so it's this grain thing, this, this, this grain uh, agricultural structure that uh, is used by, you know, whatever mutant form of power emerges somewhere to assert itself. Uh, and they ask, okay, so that happened in Eurasia, right? The grain, grain states, over, they got bigger, they collapsed, they got bigger, they collapsed, they merged, they got bigger, they collapsed, they bashed against each other and created... Uh, uh, they they got to the point where they had dominated and and uh, redefined along propertarian lines every area within uh, the entirety of Eurasia and into North Africa. Now, was this inevitable? And our uh, the traditional argument of of our teleological uh, understanding of civilization is yes. As soon as you get those states, it's inevitable, uh, and. The grab-growth thesis, of course, is no, it's not inevitable. And in order to make their case, this is where they show their hand and where you can just like feel the bottom drop out of the whole project. They say, well, you can't really say what could have happened. You can't really make your case that there was an alternative by just like imagining different things happening in the history of this continent-wide expanse that becomes dominated by agricultural states. Because... Only one thing ever happens, right, at a time. And you, can, you can't, you can't, you, counterfactuals are fun and useful, but you can't really know anything to the extent that you are trying to prove here by uh, resorting to them. 
You need an experiment. You, you need a comparison. Sorry, not an experiment. You need a comparison. And you can compare over time and over distance, but you can't compare uh, uh, once those formations occur. You can no longer do that in, in Eurasia because it's all one thing. So what Gradgrow proposed to do is to compare as like a natural experiment and comparison the developments in Eurasia to uh, North, the New World, specifically North America, not Central and South America, which, as we saw, create very similar structures of imperial domination and cereal agriculture, as you see in uh, Eurasia. So they, they're not a good uh, example either. North America. And the very fact that they can propose this and mean, say that this is a meaningful comparison and that you're going to learn something about any meaningful, you're going to be able to create any meaningful insights as in actionable insights into uh, human civilization or like the capacity for human self-organization or whatever by comparing this is absurd because they have different materials, constraints, and, and realities. They literally are different environments with different materials within them. One of them being, uh, of course, uh, uh, plants and stuff. I mean, you have maize uh, in uh, in the New World, but like things like rice and grain, and, and uh, you don't have that. You don't have those the the the, mo- the ones that became the the most uh, fruitful of the early uh, uh, cereal cultivars. You don't have those. You know what else you don't have? draft animals of any size. You know, you don't have, uh, specifically in the areas that he's talking about, uh, like woodland North America uh, and the Great Plains, you really don't have minerals. You don't have tin or copper. You know, the stuff that went into creating the Bronze Age? There are There is some copper in North America, but it's all in the Southwest. And it's like, oh, so what? You know, uh, copper and tin moved all over the place in uh, in Eurasia. Yeah, once again, they had fucking horses, for example. So all your uh, you, you know, this chapter can make a perfectly legible and persuasive pitch that in these specific ecological conditions, you can create a system where people can maintain that uh, social control over uh, their their culture and over the like political economy they create. They do not have to create alienated institutions. And they could do that indefinitely because they can come to the same conclusions about values and, and individual rights that animate uh, a modern, you know, uh, the modern liberal identity, which we can't escape. It's like, okay, fine, congratulations, so what? There is no isolating humanity. We are all in one goddamn global system. And the fact that North American, uh, Native, uh, Native North Americans are able to craft these uh, intricate webs of, uh, like, clan, uh, uh, clan uh, hospitality and... Uh, also uh, maintain structures of democratic accountability that, uh, that 
prevents alienation into uh, institutions. They're only able to do that because they have the luxury of abundant to, of access to abundant, superabundant resources relative to their population. Because one thing about the area he's going to talk about, that they're going to talk about this chapter, Northern, North America, is that relative to other parts of the globe at this time, it is uh, sparsely populated. Of course, why that is, how that relates to these questions, grab, go, don't even get into. They just are like, oh yeah, it's sparsely populated. They can move around. Yeah, you can't do that everywhere. And people are everywhere. As soon as these structures emerge that they're talking about, they get rid of the space to allow this sort of existence to persist. You need a space. You need a place that you can have a relationship to your environment and to each other that is marked by inefficiency. And so all you can create as, like I said, I'm persuaded by their vision of early human civilization across the entire globe as this shifting mosaic as people move in and out of relationships with each other and move throughout and move through space geographically while they're doing so to facilitate it. Finding homeostasis points, uh, getting, getting uh, into a balance that then becomes unbalanced that is then overthrown. A, a, a natural relationship. But then the cancer tumors start popping up in the fucking ki- uh, the pancreas that is uh, Eurasia. And how they come into being is that regimes of domination, which, as they say in this chapter, lay latent in every social formation and among people everywhere, and that led to people in North America trying to build the same sort of dominant state that we're talking about elsewhere, but failing to do so, failing to sustain it and extend it. Why? Because they did not have access to the material resources that would have allowed them to reify it into continued domination. It resided only in its persuasive capacity, which is exhausted over time as it fails to deliver on its promises to people. Once this space has been touched, what happens? All of these structures that they, they, that they worshipfully describe, and, and which when you're reading them get you misty-eyed, imagining being able to live that way in relationship to one another. Like where religion is not some, uh, 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 you know, reified structure that is tied to domination and therefore makes every attempt to express like the real sense of connection that religion is uh, a byproduct of being corrupted and turned on, on in itself and used to dominate you. Insta- like there's a great p- part in here where they describe how there's uh, this essentially a psychotherapeutic culture in uh, uh, Native American tribes where they would bring their dreams to the square and they would all decide what they meant and then they would try to get the person the thing that they were dreaming of, which is basically a communal uh, psychoanalytic framework that is also religious. All the things that have been splintered into less meaningful boxes, like taking psychology and removing it from religion and removing it from science – it has given them it has given us the ability to more efficiently study them that's where the efficiency thing comes in again and use them 
and apply them to the project of maintaining domination, but they are more powerful when united. But they can only stay united when the social order is united, when no one is being serially alienated. It is that serial alienation that fractures the psyche and makes that sort of collective consciousness impossible to negotiate. But yes, imagine a world like that. Wonderful. And yeah, I believe they existed all over the world, not just in this area, but they persisted only here till contact because it was the only uh, environment on the varied surface of the globe that could sustain it that long. But once it was confronted with the those ruthlessly efficient structures of domination, it rinsed them. They were gone, swept off of his, the face of the earth. And I honestly don't know how anyone can see this happen and then think, well, this means that the way that we fix this is we all just uh, pretend that we're living with these values and live through these values. Which this chapter shows you how, like a real tradition of experienced and validated and religiously imbued uh, uh, social harmony. Like that, that this chapter is a, a big chunk where it argues that that uh, that the social structures of uh, the Northeast Indians. Uh, in like the what would be the medieval and early modern period in Europe, that same time, uh, they were literally building an enchanted version of the Western liberal tradition because it was connected to a a, uh, a social order that was not alienated, and then it encountered the regimes of domination, the society of orders that it was hostile to freedom. That had been embodied, that was embodied in, uh, you know, early modern Europe as a transition from feudalism to capitalism, and they encountered these ideas. And I don't don't understand how Grabgro, who says we're stuck in this monstrous cage, this global capitalism that is destroying our souls and our lives and our planet, and is going to end it unless we stop it. All of that. All of the, the the big victories that led to that happened after that encounter. He wants they want to take credit for this transmission of values that they all hold, even though they were put realistically to the purpose of bringing about the destruction of humanity. Now, of course, that doesn't mean that they aren't also the values that we all must uphold abstractly. Because yes, as soon as you become a a, a, a liberal subject. You have to get a, set about the, the life goal of not ignoring and denying the, the, the idea of individual rights and freedoms and autonomies that undergird this tradition, but to synthesize it with the reality of living in a society, of living socially, in not abstract world where the human can do anything, but in your concrete specific conditions where your actions are constrained materially. And that is what the anarchists want to tell you, is that they are not. 
They want you to tell you that there's no material constraint. Their entire premise of this book is imagining human history without material constraints and trying to come to useful, actionable, politically uh, valent conclusions. And you can't do that. We have to create the world that they're kind of glinting at here, where postmodern uh, mass subjects such as ourselves, or I guess demassed, atomized subjects, technologized subjects such as ourselves, can live with cheek to jowl, eight billion on the planet, the way that these people did, and that is the ex- the goal. But that goal will not be and cannot be achieved by people just pretending like that. That's where we, what we live with. It's going to happen by grabbing the material machinery of exploitation and with it surplus extraction, which is necessary to the title, type of life we're talking about, and pushing it towards, those, towards social ends. And of course, you can then go back and say, well, how do you do that unless people believe something, believe in something? Yes, once again, correct. But then how do they motivate that belief into action? And if, if you go by the anarchist way, you have an allergy to the necessary structures of constraint of action, institutions that can push these machines and tell them what to do. If you do not get in there and control them, your action will be liquidated from outside by them the way that these social structures, these beautiful fucking organisms that existed in North America were by a bunch of VD-riddled freaks from England. All right, so that's my main issue with GrabGrow as it is exemplified in this chapter, but let's get into the specifics of stuff that they talk about. So they first pitch the idea that in the, uh, I guess, around the same time the Roman Empire was collapsing in Europe, in uh, North America, there was this very fascinating, this is part of the book that's really interesting, is, is the way they describe this history I had no, no idea about. This uh, zone of cultural exchange and ritual uh, enactment in Ohio, they're called like Hopewell uh, Exchange Sites. And they're the remnants of these periodically, seasonally occupied areas where people from vast distances would come together for like a week and essentially have a big old uh, music festival. It was Woodstock for for the pre-Columbian North America. And in it, there would be games, rituals, information would be exchanged. And during this time, their thesis here, Greg Rose's thesis is, uh, a diplomatic language of clan was... Uh, devised and transmitted such that its collapse is not so much necessarily because uh, it was no longer sustainable uh, as it had used, served its purpose. It had created a transmission belt of, of, uh, of cultural ideas that allowed for hu- people to move huge distances and know that anywhere they, go, they went, even if they didn't speak the language of the people there, that there would be somebody who is uh, 
who they knew from camp, basically, who would keep take them in, and that this this system is a way to diplomatically wrangle the reality of people living in isolation from each other in groups that then come into contact instead of fighting each other every time they met and, and, and then creating regimes around winning those battles, which is what happens in Eurasia, they can manage relationships largely peacefully because they have this shared vocabulary. Again, true, once again, allowed by the conditions of North America. And so... One of the things that is, would have been uh, transmitted and, and accumulated during these uh, ritual uh, festivals would be the esoteric language of control. Like we talked about last week, you've got two groups of people who end up vying for power and eventually like, coming, creating some sort of symbiotic relationship of dominance and submission uh, within each other. Uh, the warrior elite... Uh, and the nerds, the jocks and the nerds, the, the warrior fight, the fighters, the sportsmen, and the people who uh, watch the skies all the time and make up stories about them and, and uh, create um, esoteric knowledge that by access cannot be transmitted to everybody because it's not it's understandable by everybody because everybody does not have the same brain, just like everybody doesn't have the same body. And then they, they took this information back, and at some point, the same thing was going to happen in North America as happened everywhere else, which is this flow gets interrupted by some group somewhere of those esoteric knowledge havers getting together and deciding that for the good of the group, they were going to have to create a more efficient structure. That is a structure of domination and extraction. And they created a uh, vocabulary around it convince people to accede to it. But of course, neither one of the groups can do it alone. It's always some relationship. And the relationship that they sketch out in here is that around 600 AD, some people who had encountered, who's, who came from people who had gone through this cultural exchange process, invent this sport called Chunky, where uh, Duality is a trap. This is so stupid. It's meaningless to say that. It is the, it is the lenses you ha- observe reality through. Of course it's not real, but the non-reality of it can only be observed in grace. Trying to escape duality is literally what we're all trying to do with every transcendent application of body and mind that we can think of. But we still are stuck in our quotidian with fucking binaries and duality, and then looking at them and, and, and reconciling them provides the literal motive force for our minds and bodies. It's the engine of existence. So this game of Chunky, which apparently involved a big rolling stone and people throwing poles at it and trying to get close to it, like kind of like... Uh, like mobile, uh, mobile cornhole, if anyone has played cornhole. G- 
get out. It's like you can't. You can't. You can only speak through it. You can get out, but it's going to be the last thing you do from the perspective of anybody else because private language, as Wittgenstein tells us, is impossible. And you need a private language to communicate non-duality, to actually communicate, as opposed to use words to get an idea that has no that has lost so much potency in the latent transmission into symbols. So pretty soon after this chunky uh, game is invented and people start playing it and investing, because remember, their needs are mostly met because of the superabundance of resources. They can go where the food is and it's always there. And they can spend two or three hours a day doing stuff that is basically uh, play basically like what kids do or like what hobbyists do it has none of the alienating psychic damage of uh, labor under direction uh, they can fucking can't play a game all afternoon and, and then they have to care about it they have to invest it with meaning and that's where the nerds come in and pretty soon you have created here uh, in the Mississippi River Valley in what is now southern Illinois one of the most cursed places on earth so this makes sense that this was like literally a cursed land from the pre-columbian era uh this new settled urban social order emerges around packed earth pyramids with with walls and with palaces all around a jock aristocracy made up of people who over years proved themselves at being really good at chunky because somebody's really good at Chunky, they, which as a game that apparently a lot of things were bet on. People would bet like all their, all their, even their families in Chunky. And of course, that was also a equalizing ritual at first because, yeah, you, nobody wants too much surplus. You got to ritually destroy it. And it all gets, because the game is basically random, right? Who you bet on. So over time, it's all going to slew us back. It's not going to accumulate. Except talent is not random. Somebody's good at Chunky, and they succeed, they're probably going to be able to reproduce a lot. And they're going to create a line of people who, over time, are better at Chunky than everybody else, and all are directly descended in relationship to one another. Have a deeper and separate relationship to each other than they do to the group. But of course, being really good at Chunky doesn't give you a lot of time to sit around and stare at the stars and smoke so much tobacco that you pass out and come to understandings of the world that you can communicate symbolically, linguistically to others in a way that is convincing. Because at the end of the day, what GrabGrow point out very adeptly is the only real authority absent coercion is persuasiveness. And you... Are, Get persuasive by spending a lot of time in your head. There's a charisma that comes with being a Chad, but it has to be married to a vocabulary that has generally created by other people, the nerds. And they get, got together and created this structure that persisted for uh, not that long, I think a couple hundred years, they say. And it spreads out, and you see like a, a surveillance culture like, the people at the top of this pyramid are literally doing the, like, the fucking Foucault-Bentham thing, where they are literally doing physical surveillance and therefore embodying, like, a religious, transcendent, 
uh, um, omnipotence that the state would then embody. But it collapsed. Even though it set out feelers, they created like a, it created an entire standardized iconography around certain gods, specifically the bird man that is found all through regions that are connected mostly by water to that Mississippi uh, Valley. And that spread, it was like a cultural diffusion and like became, and if it had accumulated, it probably would have been turned into the sort of uh, like uh, uh, assertive state structure, administrative state structure that you see emerge in Mesopotamia. What don't they have? The same resources that they had in Mesopotamia. That's the answer to the riddle that this whole book is trying to solve. Material conditions were different. They can't say that because it makes them, it makes their liberal hearts flutter. But we have to return to the earth at some point. We have to give up some of our fantasies of the self. And that's the problem with anarchism, is that it separates the self. It isolates the self conceptually. And the self cannot be, and never is, no matter what fantasies we tell ourselves, uh, isolated. We can pretend it is, and we can live as though it is, and we will destroy ourselves for that delusion, but we are not ever separate. If the, if the same combination of animal power and mineral power, desert power, that could have created a combination of technological structures that could have extended the power of Cahokia, which is where this is, this, this site, then it would have done so. Because it couldn't, over time, its persuasive power collapsed, and it collapsed because it had nothing but persuasion. All those other those other empires got persuasion, and what is persuasion? Technology. I'm sorry, they were only able to keep at the level of persuasion. The empire, the the grain, uh, the grain states of Eurasia. What was the difference? They were able to create regimes of coercion to go with persuasion, and what is coercion? It is technology, which is the human. Alienation and manipulation of the material surroundings. Turning the rest of the stuff that isn't people into stuff that is commanded by the minds of people. That's what it is. That's the third leg of the stool. That's what takes the, the, the ideological fantasies cooked up by the rituals of the warriors, commemorated by the fucking nerds of, of the esoteric knowledge, it's what keep it's what allows it's what allows for the maximum exploitation of some and then the redistribution to others that is the important thing it widens the base by using technology to take from others at the point of a spear and then redistribute to those at the center and buy them off And whether or not you bet that's a, that technolo technological structure together to create that system of coercion to go with persuasion, because you're coercing some and you're persuading others. And of course, you're also 
doing it to the other. The person being directly coerced is also being persuaded in some degree. And the person who is being uh, persuaded is also in some degree being coerced. It's just a difference of which one they're aware of, which one they are consciously processing. The other one is then sublimated and turned into the conflicts of the subconscious that then are expressed through our pathologies. So the rest of the chapter, I'm not going to go into it too much because the details don't really matter, is a very persuasive, very uh, honestly moving description of what happened after Cahokia and another um, little mini king's kingdom that emerges in Georgia later called Etawan, which they uh, kind of uh, they imagine was the product of people who had had experience with the Cahokian culture or with its collapse, excuse me, collapse also rising and falling this self-conscious political culture in the plains and in the Northeast and Southeast where people who had had encounters with the state created complex rituals. And I won't get, like I said, I won't get into it. Read the book. The actual details of this are fascinating. Complex rituals of myth-making of, uh, of, um, imbuing like all decisions with like full buy-in from the community along all gender lines and across clans and all that. Now, of course, warfare between like structures of, uh, of symbols still happens. People who you, you, because of the symbols that you need to communicate interiorly render you illegible and them illegible to you exterior uh, externally. And there was like warfare, but it was low level and it did not lead to the state formation that happened in Eurasia because the material conditions didn't allow it. And in doing this, they create, before they are anticipating by hundreds of years, it's around the same time, which is interesting, but it's hundreds of years later, or hundreds of years earlier, the exact same culture of questioning and of individual liberty uh, that you saw in the Enlightenment Europe. And uh, the funniest example they say is that uh, the use of tobacco and coffee goes from being something that small groups of elite in the Cahoka era would imbibe heroic amounts of and go into trances after consuming to something that was largely uh, accessed by everybody. And people would, instead of having some guy behind a palisade take, do, take up all of the tobacco and then come out with a, an understanding of the world, you would get together, have a little bit of tobacco and coffee and focus your minds and come to a conclusion collectively about what was going on. The same time, or I'm sorry, a few hundred years earlier, uh, before the European salons of the Enlightenment would be filled with people smoking and drinking ca caffeine uh, and uh, coming to these and having these same democratic uh, conversations. And coming to similar conclusions about like what it is to be free and human. But they, in North America, are doing it where... It is fully connected to the world. It is inextricably linked to the material realm. It cannot be divorced from its specific geographic area. Whereas in Europe, these ideas are free-floating. The people having these ideas have been severed, detached from their material environments for millennia. 
They have lived in a regime of property-defining power for thousands of years. So their ideas of these are, are uh, even though they use the same words, they describe a different reality, a different universe. One where the self is embedded and one where the self is segregated and separated. And what the left tradition within modern modernism is, is the attempt to gain control for some self-conscious selection of people within the greater class structure of the technologies of coercion and control and direct them towards the restitution of a expanded self, the reawakening of an expanded self in a context of technological intermediation with the world around you. And Marxism is that strain of the left that recognizes that to do that, you have to accept and embrace the material uh, uh, constraints of your historical spatial relationship, which is deep into capitalism after it has ripped up all of the roots where this kind of uh, the kind of uh, life that that Grabro described is impossible, because what facilitates it is a in, instinctive and understood connection between one's own self interest, one's own conception of the world, and the environment that you live along. And I'm not saying you think that you're like a tree or something. I'm just saying that. You could not existentially, ontologically, you could not sever your best interest from a greater conception of best interest that constrains your actions. So you can get petty tyrants rising and falling, people who basically go insane from the burden of esoteric knowledge or the traumas of warfare if they're a jock and decide that they have to control and dominate in order to maintain sanity. And material conditions can push them one way or the other. But they can never gain and hold, this is the important part, they can never hold power because most people don't have that trauma. And most people will isolate and remove them from power ritually by having a real participatory uh, political model. So this, the second half of this chapter shows you like, oh, I get it. This is how we could be. This is what we could have. Yes, but to have it, we would have to re-enchant the world, literally. We would have to have the average person, not everybody, but the average person who participates in civic life, walking around with a world where they do not end at their consciousness, at, their, at the ends of their fingertips. And that has to be made. And it has to be reproduced. People have to believe that, and then they have to have kids who believe that. And that cannot come from the incredibly inefficient process of convincing people and persuading people alone. It has to marry persuasion and, yes, some coercion. And that is the anarchist objection. We can't have any coercion. But it is the combination of persuasion and coercion that literally conquered the globe. That made it so that the subjectivities that built these societies no longer exist. 
And so that the average person, not the average anarchist, which is a fraction of the population, the average person cannot imagine living in such conditions of freedom, no matter what they say they value, because they don't trust each other enough. And they cannot imagine sacrificing their own degree of personal pleasure that they have grown addicted to, to substitute for that sense of connection that we are robbed every moment of our lives. Robbed of every moment of our lives, I should say. The real, the real just heuristic failure of this book is that Grabgo decide that they want to uh, imagine and describe so, human social orders as being determined solely by humans. Like, that is their big pitch. People make these decisions. But no, they don't. People make these decisions in a material context that constrains them. Because at the end of the day, necessity trumps everything. The reason that these models persist for so long in North America, Woodland, North America, low uh, birth rate, North America, is because of the superabundance of resources. Because necessity does not pinch the same way it does in, say, Mesopotamia. Say it does in, like, heavily, heavily populated uh, Yellow River Valley of, of uh, China. You cannot really understand humans in isolation from their environment. And this entire book is about doing that. It's about pulling the humans out of their structures, the political, social, historical fixed uh, relationships that may, gave them consciousness and defined consciousness for them, pulling them all out of those and imagining a universal one. And yes, there is a universal like sensory apparatus and, and reasoning capacity, I would agree with that. Yes, I understand why that is considered sort of bold and uh, revolutionary, considering, yeah, like Western white supremacist thought says the opposite. It says, no, everyone is not equally capacious in reasoning. Like, that's the whole premise of imperialism. That's what undergirds our social order to this day, now that we've killed God. Okay, yes, God's dead. There's no spiritual reason to do anything. There's no right or wrong. But there is my pleasure and, and my thriving and the thriving of my line and the people I like and the things I recognize symbolically, why should mine thrive and then others not? Well, because you are more capable of manipulating the symbols and keeping the system going. That's it. That's why the West has to rule, because there is insufficient uh, equality of, uh, of abstracted reasoning condition, uh, understanding. And that is then turned into a moral ranking and Grab Girl point out here, and absolutely, that is their best contribution and why this book, I still absolutely uh, recommend it to be read. Because they, they really do put a fucking nail in the coffin of, uh, of any, like, you know, hardcore realist ideas that, uh, that conflate, uh, like, conditions of, you know, thriving socially under, under modernity. Uh, and any any line like 
intellectual capacity and therefore any like moral distinction. You can't, there isn't. And they, and they do that job well. But what that doesn't do is it doesn't tell you anything about uh, the inevitability under in the shifting and, sh- and s- swirling conditions of life on the whole planet, not just in woodland North America, the emergence of these regimes of domination. And I don't think that they, uh, I think that's a swing and a miss because they just, they remove the material uh, consideration. They, re- they remove the material uh, constraint as a, as a factor in their calculations. As soon as you add it, the, 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 the claims they make just get deflated. As soon as you add it, the, uh, the, the phenomenon of uh, North American Indian like liberty uh, loses its uh, uh, loses any ability to persuade you uh, that we can just step out of this. Because it got, as all alternatives to uh, surplus domination, as all alternatives to property, uh, was destroyed. And that leaves us with the grubby work of conquering institutions and putting them to work, including coercive work. And that lends you towards a certain politics and Beyond that, you have to make your own decisions. How can I make that happen? Again, can't be can't be prescribed. Has to be experienced. So yeah, all humans are uh, are are have the same capacities socially, individually, and and socially. But the closer you are to capitalism, once it emerges from like this churn, the better you're going to get at becoming adept at its symbols, at its language. And of course, like the scary thing is that, and this is what drives some people like crazy and turns them into, you know, uh, accelerationists for the, the singularity, is that they, they see how totalizing this process is, which goes to show that, like, it is of, over time the material consideration, which is to say the technological consideration, crowds out everything else. And the stuff that used to be vital in determining human actions is now tertiary because all the real decisions are being made abstractly and algorithmically and carried out by technology that does all the work that used to had to be do by he had to be done by humans and that means that those technological regimes have to be uh, taken over but they can't be taken over from within because the last people to be alienated are going to be the ones in the, in the center. Which means that if you take this seriously and you say, oh, nothing from within is going to change this, which means revolution is impossible, as in a revolution from within a social order is impossible. Well, then I am, since I'm in the middle, 
I am just going to watch over the next decades as the as the uh, technological regime that exists in part to keep me relatively comfortable and keep me protected so that I don't and that other people like me don't actually like change the algorithm. Because obviously I couldn't, but enough people in America could probably do something about that algorithm. But again, it would have to be a lot of them and they would have to be willing to uh, act in a revolutionary way. And that only happens if you are fully alienated from the state. And that alienation, it adheres in in spatial uh, 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 alienation adheres in places that are spatially removed from the actual nodes of power. Spatially or, you know, culturally, because you you got plenty of people who are fully alienated in, in all of our big cities right by Wall Street, but they are socially disempowered by those same regimes of technology. And if you take that really seriously, that means, well, all right, so things are going to get worse over time. At the margins, the technology uh, that exists now autonomously of human uh, agency is going to keep on cutting off bits that are like uh, cutting off limbs, securing borders, cauterizing wounds, uh, uh, strategically retreating into archipelagos of power. I've talked about this before. And you're going to be on the inside. If you maintain a, uh, a leftist, if you maintain a liberal understanding of humanity, which says, yes, I am the center of the universe. I am uh, the only thing that's real. But everybody else is just as real as me. If you keep that in mind, which is the thing that like fires liberalism, an attempt to like accepting capitalism as inevitable, direct it towards a social aim. It can't be done. It's a failure. It has failed. It will only fail. But it is incredibly powerful at wielding political power. Because you're just going to watch as worse and worse stuff is done on your behalf. And how are you going to be able to enjoy the freedom and comfort that you have? And that contradiction is really what's driving people, I think, insane. Because if you're too comfortable, you don't. Because the only real way to feel free from this is going to be to be in legal alienation from the state. Un, oh, no longer under its protection. Because if we're creating a situation where it's, it's it's the uh, it's the homo saucers and it's the full citizens, which I think is inevitable. As long as you obey the law, pay for things to keep a roof over your head, participate in the market economy as a net positive, you are fundamentally under this. Uh, uh, you are constrained. Any action you do will be meaningless. I'm going to do politics. Well. You're going to decide what politics is in a way that avoids the risk of you being dispossessed because you're scared of it because you don't feel that connection. You feel at the end of the day that you really are the only thing in the universe, which is what liberalism propagates. And this is what's so funny about these trad dipshits and these neo-reactionary morons is that they think that they're destroying liberalism, but they're fucking fulfilling it. They're fulfilling liberalism. They're saying, if I'm the only thing in the universe, if I'm the only thing that's real, well, and that means the most important thing is to keep me comfortable, to keep me living, 
to keep the universe going and comfortably and happily because the universe is my state of being. And that means watching through the glass as the world is destroyed on my behalf and thinking this is good. They had it coming. So you, you, you're going to be like, they had it coming because they're degenerate. They had it coming because they uh, don't go to mass. They had it coming because they're low IQ and therefore in a dog-eat-dog world don't deserve to live. Whatever you tell yourself, it'll end being the same thing. And of course, the comedy is, is that the libs, the people who think they're embodying liberalism, they're going to end up in the same boat. They're going to end up embracing the same ontology. Only they're going to look through the screen at the misery and they're going to pick out uh, the white supremacists and, and, and the, uh, uh, the misogynists, the people with politically bad opinions, make them bad people. Of course, everybody else is going through the buzzsaw too, including many of the people that they think uh, deserve the, the umbrella protection of humanity, of human rights. But, sadly, they cannot get that because of those others. And so, they're righteous. They're, they get to participate in the spectacle of violence while rooting uh, for the state, for the monster, for the algorithm. And that's like, I think that's the entire uh, neo-reactionary project. That's the entire, like, uh, uh, dark enlightenment. That's, that's the whole new right thing is to uh, identify with the machine. Is, it's, it, like, that is the singularity that they dream of. And it's, and it's also the religious ecstasy that the uh, fake traditional Catholics are also imagining. Oh, uh, Jesus is actually a medieval uh, epic uh, Teutonic knight. Well, congratulations. You are literally just a... a uh, you are just as sadistic and vile as uh, as any uh, perpetrator of religious uh, fraud, any atheist, uh, communist commissar. It's Satan worship. Satan in the form of the algorithm, in the form of the idea of self that has been generated electronically and then sold to you. And that is very, like, the reality of that is fucking fucks with people. It means I'm either at some point going to be very uh, much less comfortable than I am right now and, and much less uh, in act, able to access the, the treats and goodies that, that soothe my, my modern soul and my alienation and that salve all of the gaping wounds that modernity has left that I know are there and that I spend all day uh, fetishizing about from the comfortable, safe, nourished pod that I live in. And I can post it out. Or I'm going to stay comfortable while uh, 
becoming, yes, essentially a, uh, a willing spectator to a gladiatorial combat that is how I will absorb the, I will, that, that's what I will be viewing it as. What it really will be is planetary destruction. Planetary, dist- planetary destruction. Planetary destruction and genocide. Ecocide, because it's not even going to be really racially. We will observe it through a prism of race and, ident- and identity and, and virtue and, 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 and evil and politics, but it will be carried out relatively even-handedly. If you don't have money, if you don't have utility, you'll be fucked. Omnicide. Bottom first. As we direct resources to maintain this supply chain that at this point just feeds the network. That just feeds the, uh, the, the real nervous system of the earth, which is the, its fucking um, internet infrastructure. And of course, caught with that dilemma, people move towards religion. And of course they do. But the thing is, if your religion is as intellectualized as the rest of your life, if you come to the conclusion that you need to have a religion now in order to square the circle, it's just going to be an extension of your ego, which is what it is for all these neo-trad reactionaries. Like, oh yeah, no, God's real and he wants what I want, which is... uh to relieve the anxiety of being a first world subject uh, through a ritual of uh, violent spectacle that I get to observe, which is what I've done my whole life, is I've observed through this prism, this violent spectacle of world politics and of the annihilation at the, at the margins of, of life, both human and animal. Uh, but of course, at a far enough remove that I can intellectualize it, which we all have done. But it's getting closer the degree to which I can really filter this is becoming strained. I know, I'll just add another layer of abstraction to this and then get play. Okay, I, I, I have to, I go to church and it's giving me permission to root for the demise of the earth because God uh, coincidentally just wants what I want. Yeah, he has all these critiques of capitalism, but wouldn't you know it, we got to get rid of the liberals first. Okay, you got rid of the liberals. You mean the ideological category that is just a way that people work the worry beads of, like, first world consciousness that at the end of the day is totally hostage to the fucking algorithm? You're going to eradicate that? Okay, how are you going to do it, for one? And then once you've done it, what happens? The fucking machine is still operating. The thing that did this, that turned all of those dowdy yeoman that you worship into bug people. How did that happen? How did they let that happen? It wasn't the fucking Jews. It was the machine. You call it the Jews because that is a human face on it because it is unexaminable. It is a reality that cannot be confronted. Anything that gets personalized and narrativized is the abstraction of that and the, and the uh, sublimation of that that cannot be confronted. So yeah, you've just deepened the the meta. You've just deepened uh, the metaphorical 
uh, uh, language, but you still haven't felt anything. You're still dead inside because you reasoned yourself to this because you're not moving towards something that is not speakable. You're not moving towards, I hate to use the word because now I sound like just a hippie dipshit, but this is what happens when you really get to the point where formal communicable ideas hit the real boundary of like the ineffable reality of human experience, love. Because that won't let you do that. It won't let you abstract that way. And it won't let you keep an idea of religion that is that abstracted and is that uh, instrumental to your narrowest ego desires. But the good news is, the good news always is, is that the, the capacity to have an experience that changes one's relationship to their narrativized understanding of the universe that they carry with them is infinite. It happens all the time. The same, and with the same sort of jostling process that, that, re, uh, that uh, creates and then recreates uh, and generates over time, um, our conceptual matrix. Because what makes culture is experience. It is an experience. Something happens to you, you feel a way, and that feeling is carried around you in memory and in the body and then transmitted and turned into a social memory symbolically. And it's those symbols that get people to act a certain way over and over and over and over again. But it also creates, but because it happens over and over and over again, trauma, what we call trauma, emerges over time within a person and within a culture, unless it's able to ritually renegotiate its relationship and break up those trauma patterns, which is what, uh, for example, the uh, uh, what the post-Cahoa society that Gregor talked about did, is they had the trauma of the experience of the Cahogian culture, and then they broke up its remnants ritually uh, by not allowing the accumulation of social structures that, acc that accrue power in one direction, breaking it up. That feedback loop, that keeps you stable, but in the right material conditions, the technology prevents the feedback loop from being invented. It blocks it, and that is because of stress and trauma accumulating in a social organ, and that is inevitable. Only in conditions of a total abundance like that of North America 
Can you stabilize it? It is in conditions of constraint and in access to certain technological multiplying resources, eventually uh, dominant. And it creates new structures that reorient people's relationship to symbols and to the feelings they have. And what it does more than anything is that it makes you live in a society, social relationship to others where you are repeatedly socially mistreated by people that are inside your group. And then all those symbols that were designed to express unity are put to the purpose of justifying why that is. It is, it's, it, the cancer is the metaphor. It is a runaway growth. It's a runaway adaptation. It's, it's the cells of the body rejecting uh, the basic code understanding that there is no distinct interest between the cell and the body. And, uh, you know, the same way, like, you're less likely to get a tumor if you're uh, not around carcinogens of various kinds, things that, like, throw random uh, atoms into your body and, like, maybe might knock a, a, a DNA strand into a different direction. Uh, the more of those things you have, the more likely you're going to get a tumor. And the Eurasia is just... Ooh, there's so many social carcinogens there. There's so many cereal crops. There's so many uh, draft animals. And forget draft animals. Another thing they don't have in North America, pigs, which are huge. Pigs are gigantic in the formation of, uh, of uh, agricultural states. If you want to talk about buying off at the top, one way you buy off at the top is with access to luxuries. And in the early stages of the development of any social structure, luxuries are hard to come by because of the lack of that administrative capacity, right, that comes later. How do you make up for that? You have some delicious, basically near humans that you can distribute. So that's another mechanism of, of persuasion that, they, uh, that all these North Americans didn't have access to. But, like, I honestly think all they're really doing with this book is they're switching the moral, uh, the, the moral lens. The, the, the prejudices then, then, because we worship progress, that uh, the emergence of uh, systems of power and control is natural. And the... Uh, stagnation of uh you know non-improving cultures uh is somehow eventually uh non-operative non non uh not, that there's a state beyond nature that is uh preferable and all they do is say no that's that is the natural state that is a bo- that is a social body in homeostasis which is environment that's what we literally all should be if we and and that not being is in the source of most of our social problems. Of course, we'd still always have human problems, but we could solve them because we would be able to isolate them. And people could be able to socially deal with them 
because there would be no class interest to subvert and undermine by dealing with the problem. That's why we can't deal with problems, no matter, even though we have democracy, because every problem we have is premised on property relationships. And that can't be addressed. So the only thing we can do is solve a symptom that causes another problem. That is the one-way ratchet of all uh, democratic governance. And it's the reason, it's, it's also the source of the critique uh, of liberalism and of capitalism that you see on the right. It's like, oh, it's, all it does is, is create more problems. That's because it cannot confront the real cause of those problems. And because personal problems now get totally subsumed into this social category. We are the tumors. Like we, we, this is a fundamental malady, a social malady that has to be fixed. How do you do it? How do you get out a tumor? I guess the question is, do you uh, eat grape juice? Do you drink grape juice like Steve Jobs wants you to? Like, honestly, like Grape Grow want you to? Do you, uh, do, you, do, you ta- do the Dr. Sebi diet? Or do you accept the, uh, the benefits that come with technology that are right there as the Janus face of its, of its miseries and use those modern technologies to cut it out, to you, to you do chemotherapy, chemotherapy to flush it out of your system. I guess like the the the, the left is divided between the, the homeopaths and the people who want uh, you to use the, the the latest, most well scientifically tested, scientific technological advancements. So the anarchists for me, they want you to, to drink uh, to drink the naked juice and, uh, and stand under a crystal. Uh, and uh, the Marxists want you to get some goddamn chemo and, and get somebody in there with a fucking robot arm and pull that motherfucker out like a goddamn uh, uh, like the, like the like you're getting uh, the lobster harmonica from the claw game on The Simpsons. Okay, I thought this was a good one. I thought this was a great chapter to really get at uh, uh, the heuristics here. Uh, next week, we're going to wrap it up with the conclusion. Uh, also, uh, someone uh, gave me a heads up that my boy Walter Scheidel, uh, who wrote the book Escape from Rome that I'm a big fan of, actually wrote a cr- review uh, of this book, which that's that's worlds coming together. That That's chocolate and peanut butter. So... I'm also going to, before next week, read the Scheidel review, and I'll talk about the conclusion of the book uh, in conversation with the, the Scheidel thing, uh, and then we'll, uh, we'll think about what the next book will be. Uh, I have a couple of good suggestions. There's one Leo Ponich book somebody gave me. I think it's The Origins of Global Capitalism that sounds very interesting. Might do that one, but we'll see. All right. Bye-bye.